welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the second interview for our special podcast for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day 2020. And I'm so pleased to get a chance to chat with Baylissa Frederick. Baylissa is a psychotherapist, coach and author with two decades of experience working with people from all over the world. She holds a master's degree in therapeutic counselling and is involved in helping people affected by prescribed antidepressant tranquilizer and opiate physical dependence and withdrawal. Baylissa is the author of the internationally successful self-help book Recovery and Renewal, the memoir With Hope in My Heart, and two journals, Dearest Me and Dearest Friend. Baylissa herself was prescribed the benzodiazepine clonazepam, also known as clonopin, for a form of dystonia, an involuntary movement disorder, and she survived an intense withdrawal experience when coming off it. She is now fully recovered and dedicates her time to helping and supporting others. Baylissa, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for the Madden America podcast. And, you know, I have to say, I've been so looking forward to getting to chat. And um, to begin with, I, I wanted to ask a little bit, if it's okay, about your own experiences of uh, taking and withdrawing from clonazepam, which is also known as clonopin. And, you know, also then if those experiences kind of contributed or led to your work that you do now in supporting those who are struggling with prescribed drug injury. Thank you, James, and thanks for having me. Um, it is a privilege and an honor um, to be here. And yes, just to tell you a little bit about my experience, I I have a condition known as dystonia. I've had it since I was um, age three, and I was prescribed clonazepam back in early 1998 for it. Um, my GP said, you know, it's a child's dosage. I didn't know clonazepam was actually a benzodiazepine. It was under the brand name Rivotril, which wasn't familiar to me. And, you know, we didn't have the information we have now. So I was excited and I took it and it did help with the spasms initially after about maybe three weeks. I think by then I had started developing tolerance um, because the spasms came back, but more violently, more intensely. So I threw the, the medication away. I threw it in the bin. And three days after I had what seemed like a grand mal seizure, and I remember rummaging through the brain, taking it out, um, thinking, oh, my gosh, I've developed epilepsy. And when I went to my doctor, he just said, oh, no, 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 you need to take this for the rest of your life. And I, so I, I took it for almost eight years. Um, I eventually started um, losing my memory and just being very spaced out. I had... Um, bad depersonalization and derealization and just things started going wrong. I ended up in and out of the GP surgery, sometimes in and out of casualty with very weird, strange, you know, complaints. Um, one day um, there in Cardiff in Whitchurch, I couldn't find my way home. I kept driving around in circles, wondering where I lived 
And that's how bad it had become. And when I eventually got through the front door, I went straight to my um, computer. For the first time, I typed in um, clonazepam rather than Rivotril. And all these websites came up saying, buy cheap clonopin. And I remember I just went cold. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm on an addictive drug. And that was the same day I found the Ashton Manual. And yeah, I just, I cried with relief because that told me exactly what was happening. The following day, I took um, the manual, I printed it out. I took it to my GP and I said, look, look, I found what's wrong. It's called benzodiazepine withdrawal. (laughs) And anyway, so he prescribed the Valium, the diazepam needed for me to taper off. I had two failed attempts um, because I developed very bad seizure-type movements and reinstated in order to go to work. Anyway, in the end, the third attempt, I gave up work and I did it to the end and I had a very intense withdrawal, but I recovered. Um, Out of that came a book called Benzo Wise, because when I was going through it, I just didn't find enough resources. So I decided to write a book that would help people with coping. And that's what I did. And that book is now Recovery and Renewal. But from the book, my practice as a therapist supporting people in withdrawal evolved. It, it, it happened by default, James, in that it was not my plan to take this course, but I'm, I have no regrets whatsoever. And I'm just happy to be recovered and to be able to encourage people. Wow, Bailissa, you know, eight, eight, eight years on clonazepam, that's, that's quite a long time. Can, can I ask you how long it was you, you took to, to taper off? And I know you said you had two failed attempts, which I know well, because I've been there myself. So on, on your successful attempt, you know, how long did you take to, to taper off? Not long, as in I know now it was maybe too rushed. Um, I think I took two and a half years for all three um, and maybe a year and five months for the um, final attempt, the, the successful one rather. Yeah, I completed it. I remember December 17th, 2005. Wow. And the question that people always want to ask anybody that is involved in the withdrawal world is, you know, when will I feel better? You know, how, how long will healing take? And of course, that's such, a, such an important but such a difficult question, isn't it? So, you know, I'm guessing you went through a period of healing after your finishing successfully your taper. So was it a linear thing or, or did it come and go? And, you know, how, how was the healing for you over, I, I guess it was over a long period? It was, but that's because I went into acute during my taper, you know, rather than at the end of the taper. So um, I was, you know, in and out of hospital. I was, I was very symptomatic throughout the taper and after. Um, in terms of what happened after the last dose, I was housebound, bedbound for part of the time and on my own. Um, I didn't have the support of my doctor. He actually prescribed all the diazepam needed in one go. 
It was different back then as well. I mean, I had a razor blade that I used to use to snip the um, the tablet in half and then quarter. And it was just a nightmare, you know, compared to the sophisticated way people taper now, you know, titrating and with proper scales. We didn't have that back then. But I did it. And as I said, I was very symptomatic. I just found ways of coping, James, of getting through each day. I did have waves and windows, but the windows or the periods where the symptoms abated, it wasn't that they all went away. It just meant that maybe the brain fog lifted a bit and, you know, I felt, oh my gosh, you know, maybe I am going to get better. So I really relished those times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bayliss, I think, you know, thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, when, when was it that you started to kind of support others, perhaps struggling with similar things? And did that start off informally? I actually started, it was, I vividly remember in March of 2006, I was still in the throes of withdrawal, James, but I remember I was listening to um, someone called Dr. Wayne Dyer on a, on a radio program. And I think somebody with cancer called in and he said to her, ask how best can I serve? And that just sort of struck a chord with me. And I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a blog online and just share with people, you know, how can we get through this? So I started this blog. At first I called it um, Benzo Blunder. I'll never forget, yeah. And then I changed the name to Lights in My Windows. James, it was the most airy-fairy blog you could ever imagine. Anyway, it soon became more, you know, serious than that. And I would just sort of write, encouraging everyone to not give up. And what struck me um, as quite surprising and unusual was the, the response. So in no time, there were thousands of people, you know, writing back and they were going through the same thing. And I thought, well, this is because, you know, we, we didn't know that there was this underworld of suffering. Anyway, that evolved into the, the, the journals and the Benzo Wise book. And all, all that time I was, you know, emailing with people who were in withdrawal. After I healed, I just tended to do it, um, you know, just I never charged or had a practice formally, but I would until from early morning until about 11 at night, I would be speaking to people in withdrawal, telling them, no, you have to, you know, don't give up, keep holding on. And that went on until about 2010. And then I, I started Recovery Road, which was meant to be an, uh, a charity. So I registered it with the Charities Commission and continued the work. I ran a helpline then. Um, Lady Caroline Montague, Lady Sandwich, got in touch with me and said she wanted to help. So she tried to get funding from, you know, people she knew. Um, but we, we weren't able to sustain it because we couldn't get proper funding, you know, for me to have a salary or anything like that. And in the end, you know, I dissolved it. And that was when... I just had to start working as a therapist again. So in 2014, 
that was when I started back as a, as a counselor, not just supporting people in withdrawal. At the time, I was working with um, Cardiff Met University and also a practice at home. And so, Bailissa, you know, aside from benzodiazepines, do, do you also work with patients who are having trouble with other psychotropic medications as well? And, and if so, you know, do you see similarities between the problems that people are having with benzodiazepines and perhaps that they might be having with maybe antidepressants or antipsychotics? Yes, James. Yes, I do. I have people who contact me because of difficulties experienced when coming off the antidepressants, antipsychotics, opioids, um, stimulants even. And I've also had people affected by over-the-counter herbs. So valerian and St. John's wort, those are two common ones. But the most surprising for me has been the number of people in withdrawal from magnesium. Um, These are people who didn't take a benzodiazepine or an antidepressant. Um, I would say that in all the cases, the the symptoms are very similar and the, the, the withdrawal experience. Maybe for antidepressants, benzodiazepines and antipsychotics, the, the withdrawal can last longer. So duration may be the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's helpful. And, and um, you know, obviously anyone who has been involved in this world knows that people going through withdrawal and experiencing this they can be extremely anxious they can feel depressed hopeless completely inconsolable at times where they're suffering and in great need of support and reassurance so you've been supporting people for many many years Belissa so you know how do you continue to do that without reliving that kind of stress yourself and getting burnt out yourself? Thanks, James. Yes, I think um, my training as a therapist has helped in terms of my own self-care and being able to empathize, but also detach when necessary, and also my own healing from the withdrawal experience that has helped. Um, But I would say that seeing, witnessing people heal is, is what sort of creates the balance. So the most challenging part of my work is, of course, um, seeing the suffering and the ways in which people's lives are devastated. Um, I think no matter how long I do this work, when I get that first call and the person is in shock and completely traumatized, you know, because he or she had to give up work or move back in with parents, you know, in some cases seen the breakdown in relationships or children taken into care, you know, or the financial impact. So people lose their homes or, you know, they have to declare bankruptcy. That's always hard. I would say that's the hardest for me. Nothing is more challenging than witnessing the devastation and nothing is more rewarding than witnessing the healing. Before I knew too much about this world, I I was shocked to find out how much prescribed drug injury can affect a person's entire life so you know you 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 tend you know before you know much about this world you tend to think that taking and coming off drugs is a medical thing but you're so right Belissa you mentioned housing and and work and family and the drug injury affects all of those parts of a person's life doesn't it 
It does. It does. And I think the only other thing that's challenging is seeing people being misdiagnosed and given inappropriate treatment or, you know, being told the symptoms aren't due to withdrawal or sometimes that no one else has ever had such a reaction. You know, certain things are difficult to hear. And because I'm not a medic and there are times I can't say anything, that can be very challenging as well. Uh, and so, Belissa, if, if it's okay to ask, you know, wh- what can someone expect who, you know, who maybe comes to talk to you about their withdrawal experience or, or prescribed drug injury? It always depends on what the person needs. Some people just want to talk, you know, to give their family and friends a break. They just need a, a listening ear. Um, others want to know what are the best coping tools. Um, some want reassurance. Um, I think because, James, I have, you know, the 15 years of anecdotal evidence or going on 15 years of anecdotal evidence, some people want to ask specific questions like, you know, have I heard of a certain symptom or have I ever seen a case like theirs? You know, things like that. Um, So I don't give tapering or medical advice. So the focus for me is always on the person's emotional safety and well-being and coping as best as possible. I always give priority to the people who feel like giving up. So my way of giving back is always to devote my mornings to the people who are most vulnerable and at risk. And we have an arrangement where every morning they'll check in to say, you know, they're going to hold on for another day. And so I will do that with them until they're well enough or they feel safe enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's so important to provide that connection, isn't it? One of the issues I'm aware of, Baylissa, is when um, the person who's struggling with prescribed drug injury has family members who may not take seriously what's happening to them or may, may not believe them. So I wondered if you come across that yourself in, in your work and if there are ways to address that. Yes, James, I think the best support someone in withdrawal can have is at least one family member or friend who is willing to find out everything there is about withdrawal, you know, to thoroughly research the subject. And even if it doesn't make sense to them and they can't relate to what's happening, the devotion or dedication to giving the complete support, um, you give the loved one the benefit of the doubt and you just be there for the person. Um, you, you become that person's um, safe person in terms of someone they can approach if they feel overwhelmed and you just give the, on, the, the loved one unconditional care. So doing your best to understand the complexities of the symptoms. Um, I'll mention here the concept of emotional dysregulation or neuroemotions, um, because that really affects um, relationships and how support is given and received. The neuroemotions, that's where emotions are magnified or they're extremely intense and sometimes they can be inappropriate or they can just surface out of the blue. 
people describe them as being off the charts or unnatural or weird or out of character. They'll say, it's nothing like me, but I've become so paranoid. You know, things like that. I think it really helps when the family member or friend understands this and is able to accept that the loved one may be acting like a stranger, you know, being very weird, but that it is um, withdrawal induced and, you know, not to take it personally. Acknowledging that the healing process is not linear. I think that's very important as well um, because it means that the person may find it difficult to commit to social events or any plans that are too far ahead in advance. Some people in withdrawal will only know on the day or even maybe an hour before how well they'll feel. And so being pressured in this regard can be very stress-inducing. If a family member or friend cannot relate to the withdrawal experience, I always say just please, please trust what you're being told. Because it's easy to say, pull yourself together or, you know, why don't you go back to work and stop hanging out with those people on the internet, you know, and why are you so obsessed? It's, and, you know, some, some family members think, okay, I have the answers, but this, this sort of approach and compounded with the lack of support in general. So the isolation that the loved one can feel, this is the very reason that people, you know, flock to the internet and go for validation from the online groups. So I find that the family members and friends who are more accepting may not have that problem as much as those who are um, against the person being supported online, but aren't able to relate to the experience or be open enough to learn. And I guess then that there's a, you know, a similar uh, question around prescribers, because, you know, convincing family members and and getting help from them is one thing, but, uh, you know, perhaps dealing with prescribers who might, might be resistant or reject any suggestion that the drugs could be at fault, you know, and preferring to blame the individual. So, you know, I wondered if, you know, you had any advice for clients in terms of approaching their prescriber about what they're going through. Yes. Now, this is a difficult one for me, James, because as a psychotherapist, I have to be very careful. Um, Even a simple comment like, that taper sounds quite rushed, can result in accusations of practicing medicine. And I actually know of one counselor in the US who was sued by a client's doctor for that very remark. So what I do, what works best is putting something in writing to the client. Um, For example, a client might come to me saying, oh, my doctor has said, and this, you'd be shocked at how regularly this happens, but the doctor would say, right, I want you off the Prozac by the end of the month, or we need you off this Valium, chop, chop, you know, that sort of thing. And of course, this person has been in the groups and has seen how, you know, they could end up with seizures or psychosis or they could die. What I do then is I write a letter to the client, sort of paraphrasing the client's concerns. 
here are the nice guidelines, you know, and I'd maybe quote what, what is relevant and I'd put it all in a letter and then the client would take that letter to the doctor and that way it's in the right context. The counselor can't be accused of, you know, practicing medicine. What I find is that the written communication can be most effective. The other advice I give is to make sure that the person mentions the physical symptoms, if there are any. The reason is that the minute you mention the anxiety and panic attacks and paranoid or obsessive thoughts, any anhedonia, any of those symptoms, of course, the risk of being labeled with a mental disorder or, you know, your doctor taking out the prescription pad for an antipsychotic arises. I'm not saying, you know, lie or don't mention them, but mentioning, you know, things like the muscle pain and digestion issues and tinnitus and numbness, headaches, you know, the physical symptoms can create more of a balance. But don't be surprised if you're told that no one has ever had a reaction like yours and this is your underlying condition that has come back. They're famous for saying that or that you need, oh, you know, this is what I mean. You really need to go back on the drug. See, you're not doing very well without it. So the, the withdrawal itself is not acknowledged at all. Yeah, that's 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 uh, so difficult to confront, isn't it? I like the, you know, sensitive, documented way that you approach a person communicating with it with a prescriber, because the person can feel like they're between two, you know, two sets of advice quite easily, can't they? And if if they mention the internet, doctors get very unhappy with that. So they do. So luckily, you know, here we have our guidelines. And um, the other thing too would be, of course, to take the Ashton manual like I did to the doctor. I do have people call me from the doctor's office and I have spoken to doctors, but usually there's a little bit of condescension. You know, I'm seen as that overly zealous, um, you know, recovered patient or, you know, you know, that sort of thing. The other thing would be to direct them to maybe websites that are more um, scientific-based. I don't know, Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry or the Benzo Info Coalition, even the WBAD website. Just maybe asking the doctor to please be open enough to checking one of these sources of information so that doubt that what you're saying is true or, you know, this it's, it's all in your head attitude, you know, can be diffused. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you, Baylissa. And I was also wondering, you know, in your experience and in, in the interactions that you've had, where, you know, whether there are coping techniques for those withdrawing from benzodiazepines that you might kind of recommend for people. I think like everyone else in withdrawal, no one size fits all. Um, But the most important thing that everyone should attempt at least is the acceptance or allowing 
Um, by that, I mean not fighting the symptoms and acknowledging that whatever is happening needs to happen in order for the healing to take place. So, for example, Professor Ashton used to encourage me to tell someone experiencing sleep difficulty to look at it as the body needing to be awake in order for some aspect of the healing process to work. So, you know, that being awake is necessary to, to get to that point of healing. And, and she's right in that when people fight it, I've seen people with the same or similar symptoms have completely different withdrawal experiences based on the, the non-acceptance or acceptance of the symptoms. So that's, that's very important. If the symptom is common and known to be a part of the withdrawal experience, then telling yourself that what is happening is normal can help. It is important to see your doctor and to have diagnostic tests when necessary, especially if a, if a symptom, you know, could be caused by a medical condition. So I always say to people, any bleeding or, you know, abnormal growth. There's certain things we can't just say, oh, it's withdrawal. But if, if the person is experiencing something that is confirmed as withdrawal related, then normalizing is key. And then, you know, there are other things like breathing exercises for not, it doesn't work for everyone, but some people find them, you know, very calming, um, grounding exercises, interacting with nature, you know, if you can. And of course, looking after yourself, eating healthily. And if you're able to maybe go for a little walk, even if you can't go out into nature, but, you know, just a leisurely walk, moving the body in some way for those who are able to, that's good. And then um, engaging in a hobby or, you know, some way of healthily distracting and definitely taking breaks from the online groups and from comparing notes, analyzing, you know, from the information overload and the vicarious distress. Bailey, so that's really, really valuable for people out there listening. Thank you so much. And, you know, kind of on that theme of healing, you're known in the online withdrawal community for your steadfast insistence and reassurance that everyone recovers from prescribed benzodiazepine withdrawal and injury. And, you know, it struck me that's such a hugely important message because it's one of hope, which is, you know, perhaps one of the first things that people lose when they enter this world. So, I wondered, you know, is it your experiences helping and supporting people through this difficult journey that kind of underpins that message that you give? It is. It is, James. I mean, when I started supporting people in withdrawal, I wasn't as confident as I am now. Um, at that time, there was a Yahoo protracted group, um, and this was in 2006. So there were people there who had been suffering from, say, the late 1990s, others who were two, three, four years off. Um, some of them would write that, you know, some of us don't heal. And, you know, I know people still write that in the groups and sometimes people have a go at me for saying it. Um, but what happened was back then I, I started to notice that one by one they all healed and they moved on with their lives. 
So that was when I thought, oh, wow, you know, it looks like everyone eventually gets better. And then also in the earlier days, I would call Professor Ashton or our dear Una Corbett who has passed on, but I, I would, you know, call them to ask if, if I had a really complicated case, you know, I would, oh, this has happened and so many drugs and ECT and, you know, do you know, do you think that person will heal? And always they would say, Belissa, everyone heals, but they must give it time. And Ian Singleton at Bristol and District said the same thing. Um, Paul Entwistle and Hilda from CETA. CETA was a withdrawal support charity in Liverpool. They told me the same. So... I'm not just the only one who says it, but the longer I do this work, the more I find it to be the case, James. So I've seen people who were on, say, six, eight, ten different meds who were cold turkeyed, reinstated, all sorts of complicated scenarios, people who felt trapped and that they wouldn't make it. I've seen people who were extremely protracted, who disappeared from the groups and who some of them are still my friends, but they would write to me privately and little by little, I'd see them get better. So I'm not saying that everyone will heal from every single symptom, but there are usually the people who have maybe residual things that pass the time frame. For instance, tinnitus or tinnitus is one that you know, I understand some people have permanently. I haven't had anyone who did, but I hear this to be the case. And they say that it's it's nothing compared to when when they were in withdrawal or they can live with it. But in terms of someone being stuck in withdrawal indefinitely, I've just never seen this. When you consider neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to form new neural connections and how the brain adjusts and adapts to changes and how it compensates when there is injury, this is what I've seen in withdrawal. And I don't think I could do what I do if I saw someone not heal. It's just too cruel. Bayliss, thank you. You know, I think that's such an important message because, you know, I, I kind of feel that while there's hope, there's always reason to get up every day and keep trying, isn't there? It There is. And I, I think it's important, even, even if you're not convinced and still doubts me, don't give yourself that verdict. Give yourself a chance, you know, to see what it, what your story will be. Don't hold on to some story you've heard that you maybe don't even have all the facts, you know, and wait, wait it out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bailey. So today we're sharing this podcast on World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day itself. And it obviously occurs on July the 11th in honor of Dr. Heather Ashton. And you've mentioned her a few times, and I know that you and her developed quite a, a friendship. So I just wondered what was she like? And, you know, what did she think really about, you know, this whole issue of benzodiazepines and the way they're prescribed long term and, and, you know, how people are left with so little support when they do try and come off? Happy birthday, dear Heather. <laughs> it's a little bit emotional for me, but Heather Ashton was just a remarkable human being. She was, I first met her when I contacted her to ask her to vet the medical information in my book. 
Um, and she was just lovely. And somehow we formed a special bond then. And that continued. And I did have, you know, the privilege of meeting her in real life as well. Um, sometimes we'd speak sometimes three, four times per week. And I was a not really a pest, but in the beginning, I would run everything by her in terms of the advice I was giving. So she was really a good mentor to me. Um, in terms of the community, she was just always a hard worker. Well, as you know, she was a pioneer, but she never relented in her support for the, you know, for our Barry Haslam and Mick Bian and, you know, all the people who were working very hard at the time. I know Barry continues to work hard, but people who aren't here anymore, Colin Downs Granger, who passed away, um, Reg Pert, you know, there are many who have gone on ahead, who worked really hard. And so she did everything she could to support them and to support our cause, you know, I think we'll always be indebted to her for not having turned a blind eye and for her sense, her strong sense of justice. So, yeah, she was just selfless, dedicated. Um, she helped anyone she could. Personally, she, she was just so much fun. She had the best sense of humor. She, she wrote lovely, um, very engaging short stories. And so she'd send me her short stories. And she was also quite good with her artwork. So she would do little cards, um, you know, watercolor painting and so on. And she, tennis, um, she wouldn't miss her Wimbledon. And yeah, she was, she was just good fun and a good person and i miss her dearly yeah yeah absolutely well she she has a, a quite incredible legacy doesn't she baylissa and i have to say that you know the work that you are doing and the work that w bad does and the benzodiazepine information coalition and barry haslam and, and all those people you know you are the people keeping her legacy front and center and you know i'm so grateful for that and i think it's so important Thank you, James. I mean, I try, of course, you know, it's not comparable what I do, but I always try to, you know, just keep my integrity. Thank you, Baylissa. And, and I guess as we kind of come towards the close, I, I wondered if there's any message that you'd perhaps like to give to anyone listening who might be in the middle of the maelstrom of coming off benzodiazepines. Yes. First of all, I would love you to acknowledge that what you're going through is by no means easy. It is, when I say easy, people in withdrawal can be hard on themselves, not acknowledging how heroic they are, that there are many people who start this journey and they can't do it. They reinstate and they disappear because it's just too difficult. So please acknowledge and validate your courage and your strength and um, know that, yes, you will get better. Even if you don't believe me, you will still get better. <laughs> You know, in time, um, do everything you can to protect yourself, whether it's from 
overload of negativity. You know, please take breaks from everyone else's story because sometimes it becomes too overwhelming and sometimes it can make you lose sight of the fact that this is a healing process, okay? So this is you healing. This is what it takes to heal. And if you hold on and just keep going, just find a way to get through the days, you will make it to the other side. You're talking to someone who was convinced she was dying. And here I am today, as happy as a lark, annoyingly happy, but happy nevertheless. All right. So this too shall pass. That's wonderful. Thank you, Belissa. And, you know, I, I just want to say that, you know, your your work and your support to people in the most terrible situations is so deeply appreciated. So thank you. Thank you, James. And thank you very much for your work as well, this important work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, I just want to say a huge thank you to Baylissa for taking the time to chat. And you can find out more about her work by visiting her website, which is baylissa.com. And I want to thank all our WBAD guests, Angela Peacock, Jim Wright and Baylissa, as well as Nicole Lamberson for all her help and support in making these podcasts and for everything she does in support of World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day. And finally, thank you to you for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates. 